D'Eva Cordigalaire, my name is James Nagel, welcome to The Irish Nation Lives. On his return from the United States the previous December, Eamon de Valera had stated that the guerrilla tactics used by the IRA were bad for publicity. They lent credence to British claims that the IRA was only a disloyal minority without popular backing, and that they were not entitled to be treated as combatants because they were in breach of the rules of warfare. The laws of war as set down by the Hague Convention required combatants to have a fixed distinctive emblem recognisable at a distance, and to carry weapons openly. However, for the IRA to have complied with either of these would have been suicide. The guerrilla tactics that emerged during the War of Independence did so not by design or planning, but by necessity, as raids for arms and small ambushes escalated into attacks on fortified buildings and military convoys. Men, weapons and funds were all in short supply, and the IRA's only advantages were its local knowledge and support from the local community. It would have been foolish for the IRA to wage a conventional war against well-equipped, battle-hardened veterans, but this is largely what de Valera suggested to the IRA Chief of Staff, Richard Mulcahy, in December of 1920, telling him, What we want is one good battle about once a month, with about 500 men on each side. De Valera wanted propaganda spectacles which would keep international attention focused on Ireland, but he also wanted to put pressure on the British government to negotiate. Willingness by the Irish to discuss peace in December was taken as a sign of weakness. Talks collapsed when David Lloyd George insisted that the IRA first surrender their weapons, and towards the end of April he told the House of Commons that the British government would re-establish authority in Ireland. Large shows of force in the Irish capital would rubbish his claim that the IRA was gradually being beaten, and force the British to accept that they could not achieve a military victory. Early in 1921, a meeting took place at 40 Herbert Park, the family home of the O'Rahilly, to plan what would become the largest operation in Dublin since the 1916 Rising. The meeting was attended by members of the government and the IRA executive, and de Valera is said to have suggested two potential targets, the capture of Beggar's Bush Barracks, which served as the headquarters of the Auxiliary Division, or the destruction of the Custom House. Oscar Trainer, the officer commanding the Dublin Brigade, was given the task of weighing up these options and advising which to undertake. An attack on Beggar's Bush was quickly written off, and so he turned to scouting the Custom House, walking through the building, armed with a large envelope inscribed with OHMS on His Majesty's service on its front. He acquired plans of the building and even got advice from Republican sympathisers in the Dublin Fire Brigade, who advised him to use paraffin oil instead of petrol, as fumes from large concentrations of the lather could prove dangerous to the men handling it. Trainer spent over three months planning the operation before making his submission to the IRA executive. At a meeting attended by Richard Mulcahy and Michael Collins, his plan was given approval and set for the 25th of May, the day after elections for the parliaments of Northern and Southern Ireland, as set up by the Government of Ireland Act. Under Trainer's plan, the 2nd Battalion of the Dublin Brigade, commanded by Tom Ennis, would enter the Custom House and spread throughout the building's upper floors. Members of the squad and active service unit would man the entrances, blocking anyone from leaving and taking prisoner anyone who entered. Each captain in the 2nd Battalion would be assigned a landing. Their task was to order all staff down to the main hall, where they would be guarded by the squad and then have the men of their section saturate the offices in paraffin oil. 
once all officers reported to Ennis that their tasks had been completed, fires would be set and the building evacuated. Trainer had hoped to throw up barricades throughout the city to delay any British forces that might emerge, but Michael Collins had objected. He argued that doing so would have been suggestive of a general uprising, and gave his sanction for the operation only after this part of the plan was withdrawn. Instead, Trainer assigned members of the 1st, 3rd and 4th Battalions to protect the outside of the building. The 5th Battalion was given the job of cutting communications between the Custom House and the outside world, specifically Dublin Castle, which was connected by a direct line. This would have to be left until just before the squad and the 2nd Battalion entered the building, so as not to arouse suspicion. The whole operation was planned to take just half an hour. Towards one o'clock on the 25th of May, a commandeered lorry containing tins of paraffin oil arrived at the back entrance to the Custom House. Serving as the centre of local government in Ireland, the building was usually busy and little notice was taken as members of the squad and the 2nd Battalion entered unhurriedly through numerous entrances. Those working in the building didn't realise anything was amiss, until armed men entered their offices and ordered them down to the main hall. Most complied, but a caretaker, Frank Davis, described by his wife as an Englishman and Unionist who insisted he would never surrender to any rebel, was shot when he tried to raise the alarm. Mortally wounded, he died later that evening. In his Bureau of Military History file, Trainer insisted that everything was going to plan until someone gave the signal that all sections should withdraw to the main hall before the section commanders had reported their tasks complete. One section had to be sent back to finish their job, delaying the withdrawal from the building. At 1.25pm, five minutes past the time allotted for the completion of the operation and with the fires not yet started, Crown forces swarmed into the area and engaged those defending the front of the building. Trainer blames this delay for preventing the successful retirement of all the participants. Auxiliaries from F Company arrived largely unopposed as the IRA forces assigned to defend the Custom House were stretched too thin. 17-year-old volunteer Dan Head lobbed a grenade at the first Crossley tender to arrive, disabling it and knocking its occupants out of the combat. But an armoured car following close behind opened fire with a machine gun, hitting him several times and killing him instantly. Inside, the signal was finally given for the paraffin-soaked offices to be set on fire. Various attempts were made to break out of the building under fire from the auxiliaries. Jim Slathery got away, but his left hand was shattered by a bullet from a machine gun and later amputated. Sean Doyle, who had burst out with him, was shot through the lung and died the following morning. His brother Patrick was one of six men hanged at Mount Joy, just two months earlier. As the flames took hold of the Custom House, some of the remaining IRA men attempted to mix with staff as they were allowed to leave, emerging with their hands over their heads. In some cases, they were given away by the strong smell of paraffin, and the auxiliaries got officials from the Custom House to identify their own employees, arresting everyone else. Entering the main hall, the auxiliaries arrested those who hadn't yet tried to get out, they saw a number of discarded guns and tins of paraffin, but had to withdraw due to the heat before collecting them. Attempts were made to contact local fire stations, but, staffed as they were by IRA volunteers and Labour and Republican sympathisers, they were slow to respond. When they did finally arrive, 
firefighters set about making sure that the building could not be saved. The tins of paraffin oil which had been left in the main hall were used by firefighters who entered the building to spread the fire to offices where it had not taken hold. IRA volunteer and firefighter Michael Rogers later stated, We had the building practically at our mercy. Parts of it that were not on fire when we entered were blazing nicely in a short while. The firefighters also smuggled out many of the IRA weapons which had been left behind. Those outside delayed setting up equipment to pump water from the Liffey, and when they did get it flowing, they pointed their hoses away from the areas where it was most needed. The Custom House would continue burning for over a week. There is still debate to this day over whether the destruction of the Custom House was an unnecessary and wasteful military disaster that achieved nothing, or a tactical stroke of genius that forced the British to the negotiating table. De Valera had chosen the Custom House as a possible target for a number of different reasons. Outside of Dublin Castle, it was one of the last functioning cogs of the British regime in Ireland, and he believed that its destruction would inflict on the government a financial loss of about £2 million, the equivalent of over €115 million Euro today. Regarded by Lloyd George as one of the most precious possessions of the Irish people, images of the Custom House burning were reproduced in newspapers around the world, scoring that propaganda spectacle that de Valera had wanted. The loss of such an important and beautiful building was a major psychological blow to the British government. It showed that the IRA was still capable of carrying out large operations and called into question their ability to control the centre of Dublin. IRA losses were substantial, however. Nine people, four civilians and five IRA had been killed, and between 80 to 100 volunteers were captured. The Dublin Brigade's active service unit and the squad were so heavily depleted that they had to be amalgamated to form the Dublin Guard, a unit that would achieve notoriety in County Kerry during the Civil War. Some historians argue that the Custom House attack crippled the IRA in Dublin, and that it wouldn't have survived much longer had a truce not been agreed in July. While the captures were indeed a heavy blow to the IRA, the Dublin Brigade was able to keep up the same level of activity as it had before, and attacks throughout the rest of the country continued to grow in intensity. These, however, marked a return to the guerrilla tactics of ambushes which had been used previously, and there was never any suggestion of planning another attack on the scale of the Custom House. A common argument put forward is that Lloyd George had been holding out until the creation of Home Rule Parliaments for Northern and Southern Ireland. With those now established in law and Northern Ireland's position within the United Kingdom protected, he was ready to negotiate with Sinn Féin. As such, the burning of the Custom House achieved nothing, other than the destruction of priceless documents and an unnecessary loss of life, because peace was already on the way. On the day before the burning of the Custom House, however, as elections for the Home Rule Parliaments were being held, the British Cabinet agreed that if the Parliament of Southern Ireland wasn't operational by the 12th of July, martial law would be introduced under a Crown Colony government, and 17 additional infantry battalions would be deployed to restore order. A rare and somewhat inconsistent voice of reason General Sir Neville Macready informed them that all forces deployed to Ireland would need to be relieved by October, and that because of commitments throughout the Empire, 
there weren't enough available men to do so. If the government was insistent on its 12th of July ultimatum, it would have just three months to pacify Ireland. A few weeks later, they abandoned this policy completely and agreed to a truce, which came into force on the 11th of July. How much of an impact the destruction of the Custom House had on this decision may never be fully known. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like to support the channel and subscribe to be kept up to date with new episodes as we head towards the truce and the treaty negotiations. Check out the links in the description for references and some interesting articles, especially Les Fallon's study of the Dublin Fire Brigade's involvement in the burning of the Custom House. Accorda, thank you for joining me on The Irish Nation Lives. Slong of all.